Bible study here. Father, we're thankful for <clears throat> your word and for the things that tells us about you, things that tells us about what you're doing and the things you have done. And uh, we want to know those things. We want to be able to appreciate them. We want to be able to get our thinking aligned with yours. And as we look at these tonight, I ask that you might encourage us uh, with the things you've done for us. And we thank you for it. Amen. So we've been looking at, for lack of a better way to describe it, the career, in part, of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. We saw that the people, let's go to, when you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 10. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. I'm trying to figure out how to do this so it's less, everything's bright wherever it is. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 10. If you look in verse 10 there, the nature of these people, the people that follow the deceptive ministry of the man of lawlessness, what what are what are a couple of the things that describe those people in verse 10? That follow the man of lawlessness? Yeah. What's to, what, according to verse 10, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. To bring themselves to ruination. Bringing themselves to ruination. Why do we say they bring themselves to ruination? Because it, the Greek says it's middle voice. It's they a, cause themselves. Yeah. So it's a middle voice participle. They are destroying themselves. Their choices are causing their own destruction. They're perishing at their own hand. Why are they perishing at their own hand? What's the rest of the verse tell us? They don't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And the truth would be for them, as an unsaved person. It's one God, he's going to get done. He's the only way you're going to get saved. Yeah, there's only one true God. And he's the only way that you're going to be saved. Very good. Okay. So verse 11, so God judges those people by sending them this operative air so that they're going to believe the lie. What does that mean they're going to do? Uh, believe that the man of lawlessness is God. Okay. They're going to believe the man of lawlessness is God. And that means that they can, it says all of them can be judged, the ones not believing the truth. But even so far as, what's the last part of the verse indicate they do? And that word to take pleasure there is a word meaning that they have a good opinion about it. So they look favorably on unrighteousness. And we looked a couple weeks ago at Romans 132, where it states that, not only, that they don't necessarily participate in all those things, but they give their approval. They give their approval to people that do those things. That's right. So they may not do some of those things. And the example that uh, I would say is really prevalent today, as, an, as a, an example, and it's just one example of many, is you have people today that say, well, I'm, I'm not interested in homosexuality myself, but, but I, if people want to do that, that's fine with them. That's okay for them. You know, I'm just not interested in it. And that would be an example of something that they may not participate in, but they have a good opinion about it in that way. And again, there's lots of other, there's lots of other things that would fall into that. So the nature of these people, verse 10, they're destroying themselves. They have not received the love of the truth so that they should be saved. 
They're going to believe the lie that this man is uh, is uh, is God, and they actually even approve of, take pleasure in unrighteous things. Which brought us then, and we, we looked at this last week in verse 13, where Paul says, then we are obligated, or we ought to give thanks to God always concerning you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. So the, one of the first things he says about them is that they are loved by God. And that's a, do you remember the nature of that Greek word loved? Do you remember what the tense of it is? It's a perfect tense verb in the in the Greek. It's a perfect tense participle, te technically, which means they were loved in the past with the result they're still the objects of God's love. Yes, yeah. And that's important because when you have the unsaved, God refers to the love with regard to the unsaved. How does he state that? Loved them at time. He loved them. He loved them at a point in time by sending the Son. Very good. And then he goes on. And we didn't really get into this. We just, we kind of stopped here last week. He says that God chose you. So he says, we're obligated to thank God, brothers, ones that are loved by God, because. Now, here's the reason we give thanks to God. Because God chose you as, and we're going to talk about this word that's translated either first fruits or from a beginning for salvation. Now, let's deal with that word that's translated either from a beginning or first fruits. In one way or another, it's all the same letters. The problem is, is in Greek, that um, their words were written right on top of each other. They didn't put spaces between words like we do. And so if you looked at copies of this in, the, in early, Greek, early Greek copies of this, you see the words are all just crammed together. So there, that means that somebody else has to go through and to divide the words try to figure out, oh, that's a word ending, that's the ending of a word, or oh, it's the beginning of a word, and so on and so forth. And the problem with this particular word is it can be either the word op arcane or op, meaning a short for oppo, and then arcane from a beginning or um, or first fruits. So we have we have uh, this this situation and. Uh, in the, if it changes, one of the things that, that was changed with it was that it was opar case because it has to be an ablative case to be that way. And we, we have that. So we have this, uh, this question. And so the, the issue or the question here is, is Paul saying that God chose you to be a first fruits for salvation? And Paul does use that word first fruits at times of believers in other settings where he says, you are first fruits of the believers here, or this family were the first fruits of believers in this community. Um, but it seems to be, and, and that may make perfect sense uh, to look at it that way, or it could also mean that he chose you from a beginning um, unto salvation. Um, it's, it's, this is a hard call as, as which way to go. Probably the texts, the number of texts that are in favor of, of this being the word um, from a beginning, there's more Greek texts that favor that. So it seems like that would be better. Uh, additionally, the corner of one of the manuscripts that they say is, in, is indeterminate 
The reason it's indeterminate is because the corner of the manuscript is torn off where the first part of this word would exist. Uh, so you can't see whether that's there or not, the beginning of this word, which would help, uh, help us understand a little bit of it. Or it's torn off, excuse me, after the beginning of the word. So it's the end of the word. The last part is what you can't see. You can see the first part, but not the last part. And make sure I get my things right. Um, I'm inclined to think it's from a beginning. I mean, I'm inclined to think that's from a beginning. If it's a first fruits, we don't, we're not altering dramatically what Paul's saying. He says, first fruits is simply your first sample of those who um, believe. Okay, so you're, you're some of the first people uh, in your area that would have believed the gospel. If, if it's first fruits. But again, I think from a beginning is better supported. Now let's go back to the word chose, that God chose you. And usually when we're talking about the word choose, we have the word eklego. Eklego, which means to speak out. Uh, and it had, it, that's literally or, or etymologically what the word meant, but the word meant to choose out. So that's what it meant when it said to speak out, was that it came, came to mean to choose out. And that's not the word that he uses here. We are going to go look at a couple places where that word occurs, because this word only occurs three times in the New Testament. Is this the word chosen in that verse? Yes. Okay. And this word is the word, uh, it, if you looked at it in Greek, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that it's what it was because its form has changed, but it's the word aireo, aireo, which we'd spell A-I-R-E-O, long O, aireo. Um, it's related to the word airo, which means to take up, or to take in the sense of to, to lead up, but ireo then with the, with the little eh at the end, eo rather than just o, is causative, to cause to choose. So God caused to choose you or made this act of choosing you. Now I want to take a look at just a couple other places where ireo occurs. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 1. This, like I said, this word occurs three times. Philippians chapter 1, and if we go to verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me to live in the flesh, this is fruitful labor or work. And what I will choose, there's our word, what I will choose, I don't know. So Paul looks at this as that I have this opportunity to choose to live and manifest Christ and do, carry on doing a work. <laughs> Or the choice to die and to go to be with him, which that would be, as Paul says, a lot better. That would be gain. Which one I'm going to choose, Paul says, I don't know. So that's the idea of choosing. He's got, at least in this case, he's got two options, and he's trying to figure out which option he would choose. Actually, he knows which one he's going to choose, but he's trying to make a point for these people. Because it's really, Peg and I were talking about this, the option to choose to die isn't really his choice to make. Mm -hmm. It's not really what God wants him. That's not the way God wants us to choose when we're going to die. That's really for God to decide. And so, but Paul's making this point for the Philippians for another reason, to try to teach them something. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. <clears throat> Hebrews 11 and verse... 
Hebrews 11 and verse 25. And it says in Hebrews, um, let's go to verse 24, Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, becoming full gone, grown, excuse me, refused to be called the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Rather, having chosen, there's our word, having chosen to suffer evil or to be mistreated with the people of God, rather than to have the temporary enjoyment of sin or the temporary pleasure of sin. So he's making a choice about, do I suffer with God's people or do I choose this thing that's enjoyable in there? And he makes the choice for the others. So it's kind of like Paul. Got two options. Two options in this case. So we're talking about choosing something, plain and simple. And both of our examples are choosing between two things. So if we go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13, where Paul's using this word, this word to choose in the middle of verse 13, he says, God, you're the ones that were loved by God. God has chosen you, chose you. Uh, from a beginning, now let's answer the question, when would that beginning be? Well, it would be the beginning in God's decree. When, when we've got a number of passages in Scripture that indicate that God made decisions, that it were, they were decisions that were made with the Father and the Son and the Spirit together, so they were in counsel, and that there were decisions about who was going to play what roles and how things were going to be carried out. Uh, and uh, so it's actually a very interesting study of itself just to kind of look at that interplay between the members of the Trinity in that decision. But there was a, let's put it this way, does God ever learn anything? No, he's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. So has God always known those people that he was going to choose? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. But the scriptures do indicate that there was a point in time in which God officially made a decree. In fact, the scriptures refer both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to at least parts of that decree as consisting of God actually having things written down in a book. Not because God needs to remember it, not because God needs a day planner. Day planners are so old, aren't they? Everybody does stuff on their phones now. But not because God had to pull out his divine giant iPhone like this and look at it and flip, oh, today I have to do this, 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 and this. No, it's not that. It's for created beings. It's for us. It's for spirit beings to look and see as everything plays out that they can look at the book and go, that's exactly what God wrote down. Look at that. God, and he wrote it down there. And that, and he wrote it down there. And we've got a number of good examples of that throughout scripture about some of these different books that God have and all things. Uh, we looked at this, oh, I think like three weeks ago. Now, one of the things God wrote in his book were all of your days, but he also wrote all your members. He wrote down what you're going to be. That's all written in his book. And again, it's not for his sake. It's for his created beings. Okay. So, is the con uh, does it have in the construction of the verse there that this choosing is something that in the decree... They chose everybody, boom, all at once at one point in time? Or is this a process of, well, yeah, it's at, during the decree, but it was in time, 
you know, more and more people were chose, or you know what I mean? Was it like they chose this one and then that one, and or was it like boom, all at once it was done? No, if um, I'm just gonna say that I think it's at once because he says he did it from a beginning. So if you go back to whenever that beginning was in his decree, that's when he made this choice. And that's applying to everybody that he chose. Well, at least all of us. All of us that are part of the body of Christ. Okay. Yeah. We, that's all we can say from this statement because this statement is about us that are part of the body of Christ. We're going to look at some other examples that will include other people okay. in a different way. So he is... Um, kind of miss sometimes that people are getting on here. Um, so he he's, he's, he's chose us. That, by the way, is... So that's an aorist verb, meaning it's something that just looks at an act. <clears throat> it doesn't look at the time frame of the act, except that normally, um, uh, um, normally a uh, uh, <clears throat> an aorist would indicate something that is kind of seen as a whole. So it's just the act of choosing. There it is. It's not looking at the progression of it. If you wanted to look at a progression, like you were asking, there is an imperfect tense in Greek, and the imperfect tense would indicates a progression in the past. And the pluperfect also is another past tense that looks at a progression in the past that had a, a result in the past. Second thing about this word choose is that it's a middle voice, which my Greek student over here would... It's a well. You don't you don't recognize it because it's an aorist form, and we haven't looked at the aorist form of this. And it's a contract verb on top of it. So, so there's a couple other little details. But the middle voice simply means that he had, that God had. What? Uh, the middle uh, voice would mean that God had. Pardon it. Personal interest. Personal interest. Did you hear? Did you hear? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Peggy heard it. Personal yeah, he had personal interest. So when he chose. This is actually something that God was personally invested in, in what he's doing. It's not just that he's kind of randomly, casually, as if he doesn't care, just going, oh, I'm going to pick this person, and all oh, that one, and this one here, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I always look at it this way, and I want to be careful with this illustration, but when my wife sends me to the store to buy produce, to buy limes, because this happened the other day, she tells me how she wants me to pick out the limes or the lemons or whatever she's getting because otherwise I'll just grab them and go, that looks good, toss them in the bag and bring them home. And I come home and she goes, did you even feel these things? They're rock hard or something, you know? Find the ones that are a little bit more ripe. And so she has some criteria for how to pick these out. And But that's personal interest. She has a personal interest in picking out something that's the way she wants it to be. Whereas I'm just, I'm just grabbing stuff because she told me to get 10 of these or 8 of these or whatever. God isn't just randomly picking stuff out just because he's picking. He actually has purpose in it. Now, the one thing to be careful about, and we're going to look at this next, is I think in the, pro well, in the process of choosing, he's not doing it because, oh, that person would be great to have on my team. I want that person. That person would be a great speaker, or that person would be a great intellect, or that person will win lots of people to Christ, or whatever, fill in the blank of whatever. What? It's not based on merit. It's not based on merit on our on our side. In fact, um, before we like, before we go any further on that, let's go to Romans chapter eleven. You're gonna have to give me a second because this is off the top of my head. Um, 
Romans chapter 11, and, oh, I know where it is. Romans chapter 11, he is talking about um, a remnant of Israel. Israel. In other words, what he's saying is at the time that he's writing, God's work with Israel had largely come to a halt at that time. But he says, but there's still a remnant. And he himself points to himself. He says, I'm an example of that. I'm, I'm part of the body of Christ, so I'm part of that remnant. And he says in verse 5, in this way then, therefore, there is even now in this time a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, this is a different word. This is not the word ireo. This is this word eklage that we mentioned a little while ago that we're going to look at a few examples of that too. It has a similar idea to the idea of choosing because that's largely the way we're going to translate it is to choose. But he says this choice, he says clearly is by grace. So as Ronnie's saying, yeah, it is, it is choosing but not on the basis of merit. Now, to illustrate this, and this is about Israel, so this is a good place to illustrate this, this, this um, election here of grace. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. This is Moses speaking to the, to the generation of Israel that's going to enter in the land. Remember, their mom and dads, grandma and grandpas, aunts and uncles, maybe older brothers and sisters have all died. First Corinthians is very blunt. When Paul writes it, he says their corpses fell in the desert because they disobeyed God. So as they went, wandered for 40 years, these people littered, littered the desert out there. And so now this is the new, this is the generation that's going to get to enter the land. Everybody that was 20 years and, and under, when they stood at Kadesh Barnea and their mom and dads and everybody else said, no, we're not going to go in. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Okay. Thank you. And uh, verse 7, Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, bakar in the Hebrew, because you were more in number than any of the people's, for you are fewer than all of the peoples. Rather, he chose you because the Lord loved you and kept an oath that he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he says, God didn't choose you because of who you were, because of your quality traits. He chose you because he made a promise to your fathers and their forefathers weren't much better. Abraham, think of the, some of the decisions that Abraham made. My wife will point out those failures because every time we read through those, it just drives her nuts. And his son didn't do any better because his son did the same thing. And then his grandson Jacob, he's a, he's a well, his name Jacob, Jacob meant to grab at the heel and to usurp. He was, a, he was an authority usurper. Uh, is what he was. And he stole. It's actually the Bible tells us. It says he stole his brother's birthright. See, so he was a he was a bit of a stinker. Now later in life, if you go through Genesis, you do find that God kind of gets a hold of Jacob and gets him straightened out, and it apparently, likewise, does something this something similar with Abraham. But he doesn't choose these guys because they were noble. 
He chose Abraham out of a family of idolaters. In fact, Joshua says that at the end of the book of Joshua, and he says, hey, remember, our father Abraham, came, they came out of a family of idolaters. So you guys have to choose. Is that what you want to be? Idolaters like the people in this land here? Or are you going to be loyal to God? Okay. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. And we have a long passage here. I'm not going to read through all of this long passage. Just um, goes down through, pretty much down through verse 29. Ezekiel what? Ezekiel 16. It says in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, things that were horrible, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. By the way, when he's saying this about Jerusalem, he's not talking about the city itself. He's talking about the people that constitute the city, right? Because the city doesn't do abominable things. It's the people that are in the city. I hope you, we all get that, right? Verse 4, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. By the way, the rubbing with salt... Um, had to do with the tradition that they still apparently practice in some Middle Eastern cultures, that they live in a culture where the, the climate is very dry, and they hold to this idea that if you rub salt, it causes the skin of the baby to dry out and causes the skin to get hard and thicker, supposedly, so that they, in the long run, have less problems with moisture and drying out. I don't know. It's, it sounds bizarre to me. I did quite a bit of reading on this here. Uh, rubbing with salt. And you weren't wrapped in cloths. And, uh, so no, I looked with pity on you to do any, any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for you abhorred on the day that you were born. And we may not appreciate that image, but that was a real common thing to do in their culture, that if you had an unwanted child, you say, I already have five children. I can't afford a sixth one. And this one's a daughter, so she can't do any work for me on the farm. So they would take those babies out and they would just go out into open fields and just leave the babies out there and let them die of exposure. I mean, this is, so when he's saying these things, these people can relate to this kind of stuff, exactly what he's saying here. Uh, in a way that you and I would never appreciate. Well, not that we appreciate it, but we don't understand it because it's not common to our culture. We just abort babies. We don't leave them exposed, in the, which is just as horrible, right? Verse 6, When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field that then you grew up, became tall, reached the age of fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair was grown, and yet you were naked and you were stripped. And then I passed by you and saw, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you, covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. And I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil, I clothed you with embroidered cloth, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and wrapped you with fine linen, and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put on bracelets on your hand, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silk, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. 
You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Notice the end of verse 14, the splendor which I bestowed on you. And then the rest of this section down here, he says, and you forgot that I'm the one that did all that for you, and you ended up chasing after essentially other lovers, is what he's saying, and you false gods, is what he's saying. He's picturing them as false gods, and you kept attributing all of your benefits to them, as though those false gods gave these things to you, which they did not. God had given them to him. The whole point in this passage, really come here, is that again, he's illustrating there was nothing desirable of these people that God would say, oh, hey, I, this, I've got to have this one. He says, I came across you and there was nothing desirable. You were left out there to die. You were, you were rejected, tossed aside, laid out there in the field. And I came along and I'm the one that made you mine and cleaned you up and took care of all these things. And yet you were disloyal to me. Now, the reason we come here is because over there, you don't have to go back to Romans 11, but when he says that that election or that choice, that choice was not based on the fact that they chose him, which is exactly the way um, a lot of people teach this idea of God choosing people. They say God chooses people because he saw that we would choose him, which means really it's all about us choosing God. It's not about God choosing us. And yet, if you go over to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and look with me at verse 9. He says, So then, are we advanced beyond them, or are we better? Not at all. For we have charged both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. Even as it stands written, there is none righteous, not one. There's not a righteous man out there in the world. He's, David's the one that, Paul's quoting scripture. David's the one that originally wrote this. Now Paul is, is, is quoting David here. Because it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Yeah, that's right. It hasn't changed in time. It's still true today. There is none that understands. And the end of verse 11, there is no one seeking God. It doesn't say none that seek God. It's present tense participle. There's none seeking him. We have churches out there that are called seeker-friendly churches which are built on a complete lie. Because the scriptures say, David wrote it, Paul wrote it, Isaiah says it, nobody seeks God. They don't seek him. God comes after us. It's not the other way around. In fact, when was the first time that man quit, shall we say, seeking God? What's the very first example of that? Well, no. No, it's Adam and Eve. It's in Genesis 3. When they heard God coming, what did they do? They hid. Yeah. Man's been trying to hide from God since the garden, since the day that he ate the fruit. They're afraid of God, so they try to hide from God. They don't want to know God. They don't want to think about God. And that's the way That's the way we all were apart from God. That's the way it remains true to this day. And we could continue going through this, all these charges that Paul brings upon him. And the, and the point of all of this as he's going through this in Romans 3 is just to remind us as Christians, if I'm a believer today, it's not because there was something better in me than everybody else because we all alike were lost. 
We all were those who were not righteous and we all were those, none of us were seeking him. Now as an example of this, keep in mind, this is just an example now because the idea that's going to be stated here is going to be a little bit, um, little bit different from what we were looking at. But if you look in Philippians chapter, uh, no, not Philippians, um, John 15. Got too many verses written on top of each other there. John chapter 15. And let's look at verse 16, John 15 and verse 16. This is Jesus in the upper room. He's with just the 11. Uh, uh, Judas is left uh, back in chapter 13. And he says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now he's talking about choosing the disciples. I don't believe he's saying I'm choosing you to salvation. That's not really what this is about. This is just simply about choosing these 11 disciples as disciples, and I've pointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And then whatever you ask the Father in my name, he might give it to you. So this is really in this particular context is about his choosing the disciples, but it gives us an illustration of what we have with regard to this, this idea in other texts. If we go down to um, verse 18. And again, now this, what he's saying up here comes to us by an extension, but it really, keep in mind, this really was just, he was primarily addressing his disciples. But then he says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. That's one of the things I think modern Christians forget. We, we're, we're selective. We always think Jesus was kind of this really, you know, hippie Jesus, thumbs up guy. Everybody liked him. He was just great. But in reality, Jesus says the world hated him. In verse 19, yeah, and well, think about this. Um, the believers that saw Christ after the resurrection, what is the, the largest number of believers we know that ever saw Jesus after his resurrection? What? 500 at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, one of the things that says that there was at one. Yeah, and there's others that saw him that same time. That's right. So there were other people that were seeing him, but there were, on one of the events, there was a total of 500 all present at the same time that saw him. We think that's pretty impressive. 500 people. That, how many people did Jesus talk to and speak to during his earthly ministry? Thousands. Thousands. Uh, there was on a, on a, beside a lake, there were people that had come out to listen to him teach, and he fed them. And how many men were present that day? 5,000 men, and it says 5,000 men, not, in count, not counting women and children. So there were other people present other than just the man, and that was 5,000 on one occasion. And then he, on another occasion, he feeds 4,000. So he runs into thousands of people during his earthly ministry, thousands of people that listened to him speak, thousands of people that were healed and had demons cast out of him. In fact, um, oh, I think it was in Greek class last week, that's where it was. We looked at a, a passage there where uh, Jesus says that the, the latter state of a man is worse than the first state. The man that would have Jesus cast a demon out of him, but then the man doesn't ever come to believe in Jesus Christ. And so eventually he's just like a clean house and that demon comes back and says, I find the house clean. And he goes off and gets seven demons, he says, that are even worse than him and comes back and takes. Now the guy's got eight demons and the seven that joined the first one that Jesus cast out they are worse, Jesus said. 
So the whole point is, a lot of people heard Jesus, and a lot of people rejected him. 500 believers seeing him at one time seems impressive to us, but in the scheme of things, it was a, a fraction of all the people that heard Jesus over the course of his three years. So he says, the world hated me. You know that. Verse 19, if you were from the world, then the world would be fond or love its own. But because you are not out of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And it's a double because it's chose out out of the world. Kind of doubles that, that idea out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. He's talking to the disciples here, but by extension, and he's going to eventually say this in chapter 17, these things that I'm saying, I'm saying to you guys, it's about you, but it's also on those that are going to believe in me through your word, through the word of these men that were, well, through the word of these men that he's talking to here. So keep in mind, from God's point of view, you're not really a part of this world system out here and everything that goes on. You're not a part of the political system. You're not a part of any of this. You are, from God's point of view, not part of this world anymore. He chose you out of the world, took you out of it. And you're now part of something different. But if he chose you out of it, that he doesn't choose you out of it because he's going looking down there and going, oh, well, I'm going to choose this individual over there because they seem a lot less worldly than everybody else. I mean, this person, because they seem like they got it together. The rest of the world's, no. We're all, we were all part and parcel of that. We were messed up in all of that. And he chose us, took us out of that. Okay. So he's going through these things. Turn back to chapter 6, John chapter 6. Now, John, now this is, this is one of those examples. This is, this is the day after he has fed 5,000 men, not counting those that weren't males, not counting those that were children or women in the crowd. So this is a huge crowd. Some people have estimated there could have been eight to 10,000 people there that Jesus fed that day. Uh, we don't know. All we know is it tells us 5,000 men, not counting the others. These people chase him across the lake the next day. And when you read through the account over here in John 6, you think that's noble. But he, Jesus tells him, you aren't here because you saw a sign. You're here because you guys ate and your bellies were full and you want another free meal. You're the bears at Yellowstone coming up to people's cars begging for food. This is what you are. And so he says, verse 44, no one is, well, um, let's go to verse 43. And Jesus said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. These people were grumbling over the things Jesus had said. No one is able to come to me except the Father, the one that has sent me, should draw him. And by the way, I listened to somebody not too long ago that actually said that that word draw there, it doesn't mean that God does this against your will. He's wooing you. You know where this word is used? This word is used over in Matthew chapter 16 of the, the disciples throwing a net into the ocean and then wooing it back with fishing. No, they drug it. They had to tug on that net full of fish and pull it back into their boat. That's the meaning of this word from Scripture. So he says, no one can come to me except the Father that has sent me should draw or drag him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now he's talking to these Jews in this context, 
but it's important, I think, for us to understand that what he's saying is, if you actually believe me, if you come to me, if you accept what I'm saying, it's really because the Father has drawn you. He's the one that was doing this drawing work. Now, today, I, I'm just going to say we're not going to prove it tonight, but I don't think that that's the work of the Father today. Today, the evidence seems to be, when if we were to go through Scripture, that this is what the Spirit does. But during Jesus' earthly ministry, this was something that the Father did. And that shouldn't trouble us. They don't always all do the same thing. Jesus walked the earth for 33 years. He's not walking the earth today. And when he was walking the earth, the Spirit hadn't been sent down here. It tells us that in John 7. That the Spirit had not yet been, it was not yet, had not yet been sent. But he has been sent now. Now let's look down in the same passage and look down to the end of this in verse 66. After Jesus gets done saying these things that, be, that just give this crowd, just they're just so upset over the stuff Jesus says. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and no longer followed him or no longer walked with him. They went from being after him. Therefore, Jesus says to the 12, now he's going to turn to, the, to his 12 disciples. And he says, uh, and he used, starts with a particle in the Greek, a negative particle that's implying the answer is no, right? But we would say, you don't want to go away too, do you? That's what he's saying. And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom are we going to go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have known that you are the Holy One of God. <laughs> and Jesus answered to them. He says, did I not choose you twelve? Now get this. And one out of you is a devil, a slanderer, one that's going to... You know, one... this does not mean he chose him. So, yes, yeah, so certainly this doesn't mean that he chose him to salvation oh, here. Here, see this, so when you're going to look at this word, ectlego, choose, you always have to look at, well, what's being chosen and for what purpose? And this is chosen these to be disciples. One out of you is a devil. And he was speaking this about Judas, Simon Iscariot. For this one was about to betray him, and he was one out of the twelve. And to me, it's always amazing that at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, when they sit at Passover and he breaks the bread, and he says, you know, you're all sitting here at the table, and one of you is going to betray me. And none of the, the, the whole crowd of disciples, they all turn and look down the table at Judas and going, it's him. I knew it was him. I knew it. He's always, he, he's been shifty. No, but nothing like that. In fact, what are they doing? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? They all think maybe they're worried. Maybe they're the ones. None of them thinks. In fact, when Jesus tells Simon, in fact, he actually says the one I dip the bread in the sop with, that is kind of dip it in the gravy and give it to him. That's the one's going to do. They don't even get that because <laughs> when he hands it to Judas, they're still clueless. And then when Judas is going to betray him, and Jesus says, "What you're going to do? Go and do quickly." He gets up, and they all go, "Oh." He's going to get something else for the meal. They don't go, oh, he's going out to betray you. They don't get it. John is writing this hindsight 60-some years after this when these disciples all came to understand who Judas was. They understood this actually within days, obviously, of, of this. They were, because some of the disciples were with Jesus in the garden when Judas brought the, the 600 soldiers as well as some of the temple police out there to arrest Jesus and to betray him. Just in this, in, in this thing, does it indicate um, if uh, that was just their 
out of their humanity that they just didn't understand? Or was there any kind of like satanic blindness or anything like that? There's no evidence that Satan was blinding them to anything. No. They just Yeah. It was oh, just wow. yeah, let's put it this way. It was the whole the whole thing that Jesus I mean, Jesus tells them in advance on like three occasions, I was reading through it in the last couple of weeks and such with with uh, Easter and everything, reading through all these all these scriptures. That like three times before his death, he tells the disciples, "I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise the third day." And it tells us that the, none of the disciples ever got it. So, like we saw this last Sunday morning again, we've seen it before. When he rises, no, nobody believes it. All the people that were his followers, all the people associated with him, they all thought it was over. It's done. He's gone. <laughs> and when they, and when Mary comes back and says, he's alive. They think she's nuts. When the other women come and say, he's alive. They all think she's crazy. None of these people believe. Even when all the other 10 disciples that are left tell Thomas he's alive, Thomas goes, no. Nope. Not alive, lest I see the prince in his hand, lest I put my hand to his side. I'm not going to believe it. He's got 10 other guys that he's been with for the better part of three years. They don't believe this. And I think it's because the whole thing was just not what any of them were expecting. None of them were expecting well, Jesus. Well, who else has ever been resurrected from the dead? Exactly, Although, yeah. Although, you know, he had raised Lazarus, so you think that they think that was a possibility. Mm -hmm. Could have put two and two together. Going to be. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. No. Nope. Now we looked at this passage last week and I want to look at this passage. Well, before we go there, let's go to Acts 6. Let's grab this one real quick. Now in Acts chapter 6, in verse 5, we have a problem where the, the people are collecting um, um, Let's just say collecting money, but they're collecting more than money. But they're collecting money, let's say this, to help out with the widows that are part of the church, remember? Um, the church does not provide for those outside the church. It provides for those in the church. And the disciples, or the apostles at this time, they were having to take care of this. And it's interesting that they said, this is not a good thing, that we have to leave the word to do this. So you're going to, he says in this statement, and this is in, Verse 5, they, he tells them that they're supposed to look out over their number and find uh, seven men that they'll appoint. Verse 5, and it says, And this word was pleasing or pleased before all of that multitude, and they chose Stephen. And goes through there. And there's that word chose, this word eklegomai. So they actually had a standard. So here's a place where they're making a decision based on some qualifications. And the qualifications in the context was that they wanted people that were full of the Spirit and people that had wisdom, they they didn't want they didn't want to get people that continually made stupid choices. They wanted people that actually were going to be able to handle the resources the church had with some discernment in this way, and that they but they wanted them to demonstrate that they were full of the spirit, and so they chose. So they got some qualifications they have to meet. I'm not saying there weren't others that might have met the, met those qualifications, but they chose these seven. And there's our word to choose there in verse 5. Okay, now let's go over to 1 Peter. We looked at this briefly last week, but I want to come back to this again, having, having made some of these comments in here. 
because we're going to come to an adjectival form of this word elect. It's not a verb, although your English Bibles translate it like it's a verb. And um, well, I just I was just looking to see how my English, the English margin of my Bible translate my Greek text. Okay, we're in First Peter chapter one. I didn't say that. Okay, First Peter one one. It says uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's all areas over in what we would know as modern-day Turkey. Uh, and then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father goes back to the dispersion. These people have been scattered and dispersed from their homeland where they've been living down in Judea. They've been scattered, and some of the, and the people that Peter's writing to are not believers scattered in northern Syria. They're writing to, He's writing to believers up in these areas that we would know as part of Turkey. And and these people that have run up there, in that dispersion up there, that was all according to God's foreknowledge. These people could look at this, and I think that the importance of that is to remember God is fully acquainted with this. Foreknowledge, this word foreknowledge that he uses here, does not mean that God knew it ahead of time because he saw it ahead of time. There is a different Greek word that does indicate that. This Greek word foreknowledge, and, uh, to, and you can see it right here in this context. Look down in chapter 1. Here in First Peter chapter one, and let me find our verse. Let's go to verse eighteen. First Peter one eighteen. Knowing that you were not redeemed by perishable things, silver or gold, from your empty manner of life, things that have been handed down from your fathers, but by the precious blood as of a lamb that was unblemished and unspotted, that of Christ, having been foreknown before the foundation of the world, but only being made plainly visible on these last times for you. Now, if foreknowledge means simply that God saw this ahead of time, that means that God's plan for Christ coming down here as a lamb was because he saw that this was what was going to happen. He saw it play out, and so he decided, well, we'll go with that. It's not at all what happened. This is built off of the word, the Greek word gnosko, which is talking about knowledge you have in the realm of your experience. And so when God uses this term foreknowledge, when you go through this, it's always that God has planned it. And for, from God's point of view, when it's planned, it's as good as done. So he has a full experiential knowledge of it. I, I can guarantee you, I have plans there's the way I, my wife will tell you that. We had plans yesterday. We were trying to fix something and I have plans and I'm thinking, I'll go along. All oh, this is going to take five or 10 minutes and we'll be done. Hour and a half later, <laughs> hour and a half later, we're finally finished. I remember when I used to do odd jobs around town here when we first moved here for five or six years that I, Chipen goes, how long are you going to take you to do this? Oh, an hour or two. And so, at first, Peg was like, oh, he'll be back in an hour or two. And I wasn't back in an hour or two. I wasn't back in three hours. I wasn't back in four hours. And, of course, we had one car back then, so she couldn't come find me, you know, to figure out what's, you know, you didn't have cell phones. She didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and uh, so I, I couldn't anticipate actually how long it was going to take me to get this done. 
pretty soon she got pretty good at going. If I said two hours, she just knew there's a good chance I'm not going to see you for four hours. It's going to take you four hours to fix that window for those people or whatever it is, um, just as an example. God has experiential knowledge because it's as good as done. I didn't always know exactly how it was going to turn out, something that God knows because he's planned every detail of it. And so he, he, so when we're talking about foreknowledge with God, it has the idea that he knows it fully well because he's put it all together. And he knows his plan, and it's as good as done. Foreknowledge does not ever mean God saw what was going to happen and planned it. That is not what foreknowledge means. And this, is, and this passage, just a second, I don't mean to no, be rude. Okay. This passage, I think, is one of the best ones to demonstrate that right here because it was part of his plan that Christ come down here and do this. I'm so, sorry. No, it's okay. So the one uh, the one where people might think that God saw that this was going to happen and so that's what that foreknowledge means, that whole idea, um, it takes away from from who like who God is. I mean, it's like if, if he's... One is God seeing what man is doing mm -hmm. and saying, oh, I'll go along with that, okay. You know, and the right. other is God has planned it to do. And right. so so some people are not giving God credit for, for his power. And exactly. Knows. Exactly. And they think the other way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think it comes back to this, this illusion that we always think, we like to think we have a lot more control than we do. We like, we like, we look, we, we make up, we make up things about God going, God, God's an all powerful God and God's in control, but you know, he, he's not that much in control because he's giving us a lot, a, a lot of leeway, leeway and yeah, such. Yeah, yeah. And we really like to put the ball mostly in our court, mm -hmm. which really just does a horrible disservice to the character of God and to the testimony of the word of God. I mean, we like to think that we're the ones that we're seeking God out. And yet we read the plain statement of scripture. He says, nobody is seeking him. But I think I was seeking him. No, I wasn't. He was drawing me. The Holy Spirit in the present time, as Jesus says, the Holy Spirit was convincing me of my need. That's what was happening. It wasn't because I was hunting God out. It's because he was drawing me and He and the seeking me. So back there in verse 1 of 1 Peter 1, when he calls these people, so in other words, the foreknowledge has to do with the dispersion. And what he's saying is, that was God's plan. You guys didn't get kicked out of your homes and have to flee to all these countries and go to these places because uh, things just turned, you, you just made a bad point. It was all part of God's plan. And that's a good thing for you to remember as you watch the different events that go on in the world. A lot of times those are things, all those things, I would say most of those things are really part of God's plan. And I think we'd have a better appreciation and better ability to thank God if we'd recognize this is what this is what he's doing. But that's one of the things it does is it makes you go to this, makes you go to the book and get to know God better here and what God's done. So the more you get to know God, the more you can trust that God knows exactly what he's doing. Even when you throw your hands up and go, I can't figure it out. It doesn't make sense to me. I was just listening to one of my friends down in Florida doing his, uh, teaching his class on Monday night. I was listening to it this afternoon and he was talking about that, about our ability to praise God. 
And he says, a lot of times it's hard for us to praise God because we want God to explain up front all the reasons that we should praise him and exactly how this thing is going to play out, exactly what's going to happen. And yet he was, he was showing some examples of people praising God, even in situations where they don't know it's going to turn out because they're remembering the character of God in that. The other thing here is that he's talking to these people who are exiles, and this is what we pointed out last week, calls them chosen, is really it's saying, to God you're special, even though you aren't special to the people out there in the world. You aren't special to them. Okay. Colossians chapter 1. This is that. Two more passages after this one that I want to look at here this evening. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and let's go to verse 27. To whom, and he's talking, this is to the saints at the end of verse 26, the saints, to whom God wanted, wanted to make known the riches of his, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we are announcing, warning every man, in teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. And this is Colossians 1, 27, 20. And I'm just looking at it, and I kept looking at my note, thinking. Okay, we're just going to skip that, because I'm looking at this, and I am not... <laughs> I'm looking at that going, I'm not exactly for sure why I wanted us to come over. And that's one I just added yesterday it's afternoon. What? It's not word It's not, no, there is no word chosen here, but I think it was an, I was thinking maybe this was an illustration of God choosing something without actually using that language, but I'm not mm -hmm. seeing it anyway. Because sometimes God can say something without, without actually using that term. Let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8. Most of us know the verses at the end, what can separate us from the love of God, so on and so forth. But we have the, the, whole, the whole foundation of this starts back in verse 1 of chapter 8, where he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was a whole new thing for these Jews to learn. And then he says in verse 31, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who indeed did not spare his own son, but in place of all of us, he gave him up. How will he not also graciously give to us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? They're his chosen ones, his chosen ones. God, the one that justifies? In other words, I really would put the question mark there. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Question mark. God who justifies? Remember, there were no punctuation marks in most of the Greek original Greek manuscripts. So if we add one, and I'm kind of thinking, question mark, God? He, he declares you right. That's what justify means. He declares you righteous? You're his chosen one? And he's going to turn around and entertain a charge against you? He's going to bring a charge against you? That makes no sense. That's exactly his point. God's not going to charge you with a crime. He's not going to charge you with something. He's declared you righteous and you're his chosen one. So my understanding that he's you're his chosen one encourages you to understand something about the stability that you can have in your relationship with God. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
last one. And then we'll tie it off back in 2 Thessalonians very quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I don't know if any of you ever think about this, but, uh, and my wife will testify to the fact that there's been times I've had the opportunity to share, share the gospel uh, with different people over the years here. And, and I've been encouraged. Um, uh, I remember th this happened a few years back that I just expressed my own <laughs> personal frustration that I had not personally seen, you know, a lot of people come to personal salvation in Jesus Christ. And I still remember uh, Terry Cochran saying, hey, I'm one of those people that heard that. I'm one of those people that heard that. And it was just like, oh. And then a couple of other people, and I don't need to keep track, but it was just, to me, it was just like, yeah, just my job is to shepherd the sheep, <laughs> not to evangelize the, the goats, but, but you can do all of these things to some degree. And so I'm kind of feeling a little bit frustrated and I'd shared, you know, I had shared. And so I appreciated the fact that, that you know, that uh, I was encouraged with that. But one of the things that I keep in mind uh, when I share the gospel, when you get people that. Sometimes you share the gospel and people are just outright, they just out reject it or they look at you like deer in the headlights. It's like they just, you're getting, you're sharing the gospel, you're telling this is it. And it's just like, like, what in the world are you telling me? What planet did you come from? You know, this is the way you feel. And Paul says, let's go to verse 8. Oh, I lost my... 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Paul says... Remember Jesus Christ, raised up from among dead ones, from the seed of David, according to my gospel, in which I am suffering, even to the point of being a prisoner like an evildoer. Word of God, however, is not imprisoned or not chained up. Therefore, I'm going to endure all things because of the chosen ones, because of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ." One of the things that Paul can say here is, is that Paul, when he got to speak to different crowds at different times in different places, Paul can't see the ones that God's chosen. He doesn't know. I don't know who they are. The only, the only way I know one that God's chosen is when that person comes to personal faith in Christ. It's the only way I know. But I can't tell. I can't see that. Paul says, but you know what? I'm going to endure it so that those people that may be in a crowd that are chosen that they might obtain this salvation that is in Christ Jesus. It gives you a, a perspective of mind that when you have the opportunity to share the gospel and there does not appear to be a response or there isn't a response, that you can say, well, apparently, there was nothing. God was not doing something here. And sometimes you might say, why did God want me to share the gospel? Sometimes because God just wants you to be faithful to share the good news. It's not always because God's going to save somebody in that in every situation. But the other point is, is you don't know who those people are that may be there. And sometimes they may go away and they may come to faith. I've told I've told you the illustration of the gal I sat by. That one sticks in my head so that I, that I sit on an airplane flying from Michigan to Chicago. And she sits down and she starts talking to me. And long story short, she was Hindu. She had just a ton of questions about the Bible. She wanted to know why Christians were always so mad and angry because she just graduated from college and Christians were already yelling at people for being bad. And uh, I just ended up just sharing the gospel. Say, I can't, I can't uh, tell you why people have to act that way, but I can tell you this. 
would talk about Jesus. And she just had question after question. I have never had a person that asked so many questions about talking, trying to think who, who Jesus is. And and like earnest, not like trying to, oh, well, here's one for you, trying to trip you up questions. I mean, earnest questions, like really trying to trying to wrap her mind around this, this Jesus. And she was really eager to meet Peg when I got off the plane, because she also flew to Cedar Rapids, too, from Chicago. We sat by each other two legs of that flight that, that day. Oh, wow. And... Uh, and uh, so we, so she got to meet Peg when she got off the plane. She was on her way to go see her parents. And uh, always wonder, you know, people like that, you always wonder what happened to them. You always wonder if they ever believed somewhere down the road. Don't know. Maybe, maybe one day we get to heaven, we'll find out. That's kind of the same thing with the kids in Awana. You know, you go mm -hmm. through and you, mm -hmm. you teach, you know, they learn the Bible verses, but hopefully in the Awana session, the gospel is you know told to them and you just never know i mean and they go off and you lose touch or whatever and, we and sometimes a, like the guy we that had a the, guy come, come to church, church last week. Sunday. Yeah. i know that's yeah. what reminded yeah. me of it and the effect that that had on him you know it's like you don't know but like you said you just be faithful to do yeah. it that was kind of cool that he was there Thank you for reminding me of that. That's true. That was, and Ben, Ben himself, he, he kind of got his foot in the door with Awana as a child. He didn't come to salvation till later, but that was that really kind of set some things in motion. Right. Uh, interestingly enough, so just tying this off back there in Second Thessalonians two thirteen, in contrast to all these other people that go their way that worship. Worship this man of lawlessness. Do all these things that we're looking back over there in Second Thessalonians two in the last couple of weeks. He says in verse thirteen, he says, "We're obligated. We ought to give thanks to God always concerning you, brothers, ones that have been loved by God. You didn't love God. God loved you." He says, "Because He chose you, chose you from a beginning unto salvation." Now, there's more to it by sanctification of the Spirit, faith in the truth. We'll come back. We'll grab those next week. <laughs> it's just this, this, this verse is like a, a month-long series if you, if you wanted to do that with it because there's so much going on in verse 13. Any comments or questions here? Why is... Are you going to ask why why this word and not the other word? Yeah. Because that's when you ask. I don't know. I, I I showed you the three places where the word occurs, and uh, other than uh, other than I'm going I'm going to okay. I don't know that this is a satisfactory answer, but this is what my theology professor did, and this is when he and I went rode down to California that one time, and uh, he was talking to me, and I I was asking him about about this. One afternoon we were talking about this is, and uh, he thought that God chose this term in this place just to just to just to let us know there's another way to look at his selection of people other than just using the word elect. And he thought that this was he always thought this was a better passage than the elect passages because, well, you can turn churches upside down once you bring once you bring up the topic of election and everybody will go oh you're a Calvinist you're a Calvinist. And yet you can actually teach biblical election from the scriptures and not hold to most of what Calvin taught on these things. Because Calvin had a whole philosophy. 
philosophy that stood behind all of this. I don't know if you know this, but Calvin taught that you are completely lost. Well, we would say, well, that's pretty true of you. He says, therefore, in order for you to believe, God has to cause you to be saved. So God oh, saves you so that you can believe. Oh. It's the way they teach that, like that. So he has to regenerate you, has to cause you to be born anew. So, so I think I shared with you that I have, the, I have an article, uh, or no, I think my mom directed me to an article from a man that was out there in their area at one time, and he's not there now, but he'd written an article about speaking at a church, uh, speaking at a men's Bible study, uh, not at his church, at another church. And the, he said, oh, you got all these men, it's all these believers. And then the pastor in there said, well, they're not all saved but they are all under the covenant because they all had been baptized. And he was the whole thing about the covenant theology and the way all that stuff works. And again, that's all part of a philosophical construct that's set up under this realm of Calvinism and uh, covenant theology that that man held to, that he could look at these guys and go, there's a lot of these guys that actually haven't made a decision for Christ, but they are saved because they've been put under the covenant already. Yeah. They just, they just haven't had that conversion experience yet. Wow. So, uh, it, it's a very real thing in Christianity uh, in different parts of the world. And that'll, it's, that's not a modern thing. That's been going on for a long time. Hmm. Tim? Oh. Tim, can you hear me? I can. Okay. I was just going to say, um, there is a, a man who is quite popular, has written a lot of books, Tim Keller. And... Uh, from a Presbyterian background, but having that same kind of background and realizing all through his growing up years, you know, he heard this stuff, but it wasn't until he got into college that God really worked in his life and he really understood what it was to be saved. And, um, you know, and it's like those people that you were saying about that that man told about in that article, you know, mm -hmm. there was this, I don't know. Yeah. And I remember that article too. That was a good article. It was very good. Yes. And thank you for sharing that with me. Okay. Let me end this. Nobody else has a question. Oh, wow. That was long.